You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Do you remember history class in elementary school? I don't really remember doing history that much in elementary school. I think the thing I remember most is doing a map and having to fill out a map with all the states and capitals. Yes! The third grade! More than anything, it was competitive. I remember I can do all 50, you know, and having arguments with other students who were my peers and be like, you know, they're like, I got 47 on the test. And I was like, I got 42. And then my self-esteem went down. We did it in regions. And then you do the entire map and you couldn't move on to the next region. And I was on, I mean, I can do New England pretty well, but I was stuck in some of those square states for a very, very long time. They all look alike. That was my third grade. I know. And one of our co-SS chat leaders, Andrew Swan, recently posted up, uh, I guess it was a program or a website where you had to draw the states. I'm terrible. I'm literally the worst. I was worried about my self-esteem taking a serious hit if I did it. It's going to look so bad. So we'll post that on the show notes. But yeah, you just, (laughs) they say draw like Iowa and you have to draw Iowa and they grade you. And I always get like C's and sometimes F's unless I draw a circle oddly. I did okay with that. The other thing I always think about in elementary school, I remember learning about the Plymouth and the... Thanksgiving, and particularly because, you know, we all got parts for some sort of acting thing. You could either be a a pilgrim or an Indian. And because I'm darker, I was always the, I think we did this more than once, but I was always the Indian. Oh, my. I don't even remember what we did. I think we probably just did Thanksgiving as a celebration without any kind of critical discussion of it or what the events meant. But I've talked to students so many times about like, how they do holidays in elementary that I've kind of forgotten what I even did. My memories are all blurred now. I don't even remember what I did as an elementary student anymore. I feel like elementary, and I don't mean to like trash the elementary at all by any means, but I feel like a lot of it was almost like the myths of history. That's what I remember. And I bet that's not how it's taught anymore. And I hope that's not how it's taught anymore. That's definitely not how it should be taught. But today we have somebody who's going to actually help us understand not only what is happening in elementary social studies, but what should be happening in elementary social studies. And so we would like to welcome into the podcast, Annalisa Helverson. Great. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Absolutely, yeah. I'm a social studies educator at Michigan State University, where I've taught for the past 11 years. I teach courses in elementary social studies methods, the history of education, introductory quantitative methods, as well as foundation courses in education. But I didn't know I always wanted to be a teacher or a professor. But as a kid, I always did have a love of history. And and I loved studying history and thinking about history and geography both inside and outside of school. Like many people, I was always interested in family history. So on my trips to visit, um, my grandmother had asked her to tell me stories about our family's past, about uh, the farm she grew up on, and some of the stories about some of the crazier and, you know, tragic family members, and all of these were fascinating to me. And as she would tell these stories, she would interweave 
historical context. She talked about the Great Depression and World War II, discrimination she faced as, as a woman. She attended the University of Washington, but then couldn't get a job on graduations. These stories are so fascinating to me, and I learned early on that an entry point into the study of history can occur through these personal stories and just how the, how the past is of great importance to people and how they understand and chart their life. Roy Rosenzweig and David Thielen in their book, The Presence of the Past, have talked about this, how people are you know, really interested and influenced by the past and how they can influence their perspectives and actions. That was history outside of school, but I was also actually interested in history inside of school as well. I had wonderful history teachers and professors, and they didn't necessarily use the most pedagogically impressive or innovative approaches, but the way they conveyed it was really interesting and deeply um, exciting to me. And I particularly became interested in how art could be used to convey political and social messages. And in college, I became an art history major, and I wrote my senior thesis on an artist named Faith Ringgold. And she grew up in the Harlem Renaissance, and she's used a broad array of media, painting, sculpture, performance art, quilts, and later children's books to communicate political messages through her art. And so just like sort of through family stories, I realized art could be another way people could connect to the past and, and learn history. So I became an art history major, but then jobs as art historians are pretty hard to come by. So I returned to school and got my teaching degree, and I began my career in education as a kindergarten teacher. I worked with two early childhood educators, uh, Marsha Harris and Virginia Walden, and they inspired me to co-design with them and teach subjects, including social studies, in ways that were meaningful, engaging, rigorous, and that didn't shy away from controversial topics. And so we designed units on the family, how families have different compositions and sizes and so forth. We studied local geography, civil rights. And I learned at that time that you could teach advanced, sophisticated concepts to young children, like map scales, directions, the changing roles of women, the fact that families can come in these different shapes and sizes and compositions, the role of government in our lives, um, as long as it was done in a way that made sense to, ch to children. And at this time, I also attended a workshop by Fred Newman and his colleagues on authentic pedagogy. And that really had a profound impact on my development as an educator and particularly as a curriculum designer. And I learned the value of designing lessons that involve students in higher order thinking skills, in discipline inquiry, deep knowledge, and content that had meaning and application to their lives beyond school. I re really realized the power of that, how important that was for students to make those connections to their world beyond school. And I just found the authentic pedagogy to be really a valuable resource for designing curriculum at any level. And after four years of teaching kindergarten, I returned to school to get my doctorate at University of Michigan. And there I worked with some phenomenal historians and social studies educators, began teaching social studies methods courses, and that led me to MSU. Annalisa, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like teaching kindergarten? I mean, I feel like when I talk to people, they often would discount the ability of kindergartners to do social studies type stuff. What was it like for you? It's a great question, Dan. And actually, I did not want to teach kindergarten. <laughs> I did my student teaching in kindergarten and in fifth grade. I did it sort of uh, six weeks in both. And I much preferred fifth graders and to teaching fifth grade. But in the mid-90s, this is, I got a job teaching kindergarten, so I took it. And I quickly realized that, that stereotype that you're talking about, quickly sort of see how that could be dispelled. Because these five-year-olds are really smart. They're really curious. They're really engaged. You just have to sort of figure out ways to convey this content in ways that they care about, that is meaningful to them. 
and so one of the units we designed was on um, geography of the local community. And we also interviewed civics and government. What we would do is we created a neighborhood, and these, the kids lived in the neighborhood. And one day we had a fire in the neighborhood, and we had to figure out how we were going to pay for the fire. And so we actually taught them how to, what taxes were for and how they could use taxes to pay the firefighters to put out the fire and so forth. And so as long as it's taught in a way that is appealing and interesting and students can see the relevance, it's, it's really possible to teach in a, an array of complex ideas. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Did you also teach them to grumble and complain about their taxes kind of mindlessly? Because <laughs> I feel like that's an American tradition. What are my taxes even being spent on? As kids, they were pretty critical of that. They wanted to know why they had to pay so much in taxes. I think we charged them 20%. We, they each had a salary of $5, and then they had to give $1 back. And, yeah, they did actually – I didn't even need to teach them, Dan. I think they grumbled on their own about that. <laughs> That's hilarious. But, you know, that allows a space to negotiate and start having those discussions about the common good and public infrastructure and services. And and you're doing it with kindergartners. I would love to see a kindergarten town meeting talking about, like, you know, where their taxes should be spent towards. We had a, this neighbor called Sloppy Sally. And Sloppy Sally let her dog run all over the neighborhood, create a mess everywhere. She didn't clean up her yard. She let her grass go really, really high. And so we actually did have a neighbor, neighborhood meeting about this, about what to do about Sloppy Sally and about, you know, sort of the outlets that students could have in order to create, you know, to help Sally learn ways to be a better contributing member to the neighborhood. And, yeah, you'd be amazed how opinionated five-year-olds can be about these kind of topics. <laughs> it reminds me a bit of one of my favorite books that I've used to talk to elementary pre-service teachers about teaching social studies is Vivian Paley's You Can't Say, You Can't Play. <laughs> Which Absolutely. it's, I mean, the whole book is this negotiation on like, you know, kind of a little bit of democracy and like, what are the, what does it mean to be in a community in our class and what should the rules be for how we interact with each other? And, and I love using that as an example and kind of your discussion of the, the fire in the neighborhood and having town meetings kind of reminds me of some of what she did. You know, it's funny you mentioned that too, because that is a book that we used and really subscribe our philosophy you know, it's largely based on that book because school is a public place and there you can't exclude, you can't, and if it's a five-year-old, I think it's different than, you know, 10-year-olds, but we had a rule. We did have that rule. We followed it. You can't say you can't play. There were a couple exceptions though. We said you can play by your, you can play by yourself. If you don't want to play with anybody, you can play by yourself. And if someone is routinely not following the rules or guidelines you've set up, then they might need to take a break, but then be able to rejoin at a later point. But Vivian Paley does a great job of really digging into kids' sophisticated sense of fairness and justice, the golden rule. And really, I think our world would be you know, a better place, a kinder place, if we actually sort of really listened to what kindergartners had to say about how to treat one another. I think there was a poster somewhere that says, like, I learned everything in kindergarten in the 1990s at some point. Yes. Yeah. Everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think my mother had it up somewhere. So earlier I said that elementary school, I learned a lot of myths about history. And that's probably not the case. Sometimes it's just kind of what I remember. Or it's my own like perception of elementary, elementary education. How, what is the state of elementary education these days? There's a lot of exciting stuff going on in elementary social studies. And recently I feel like there's been increasing numbers of scholars, outstanding scholars in social studies education, focusing on really innovative, exciting ways to teach social studies in ways that are much more critical, much more focused on issues of social justice, on race and power and privilege, and getting kids to really examine decisions made in the past with a critical eye. 
So I've been seeing a lot of exciting pedagogy. Recently, I've been working on an approach called project-based learning, collaboration with a literacy professor from the University of Michigan. By project-based learning, I mean curriculum that is focused on projects and questions and problems that have relevance to the kids and they're engaging to, to the students beyond school. These projects are also lined with standards. They use research-based instructional approaches, and they're sustained over time. So they could occur over a period of weeks or months, and each of the lessons in these projects is built towards some kind of culminating project. For example, one of the projects we've designed is in the discipline of civics and government, and in that, students focus on a public park or a public space in their community, and they look at ways it can be improved. And they go and they survey community members to figure out ways it can be improved. They investigate it themselves. And then they figure out who's responsible for making those changes, whether it be cleaning up the trash, repairing the you know, playground equipment, making it more accessible. And so what they do is they go and figure out who in the community is responsible for that. And they go and they, they design a PowerPoint presentation in which they present their plans, their proposals for how it should be improved to a member of the government or, you know, the Parks and Recreation Department and so forth. And so they learn that they can affect change, you know, through this investigation and presentation. They learn how they can investigate, you know, a way to improve this through their proposal. So this work has been supported by the Spencer Foundation and also by the Lucas Education Research. And we found that this approach is more effective than traditional or business as usual approaches to education in improving growth in both social studies learning and in informational reading. So that's just one example of um, some of the, I think, exciting new ways some educators are using to engage and to teach elementary social studies. I love that. I would have loved to have done project-based learning like that. I think I would have liked that even more than the competition of learning all the 50 states and capitals. <laughs> How prevalent is stuff like project-based learning in elementary social studies? Because I feel like one of the biggest issues I hear about is just that elementary social studies is on the back burner. And I know a lot of times we attribute that to the recent rise in, in standardized testing from No Child Left Behind Forward. But it was like it seemed to be like that before even the testing um, really mm -hmm. hit hit that apex. How historically, what does elementary social studies look like? Has it got the attention you think it does deserve? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked about the history of the field because there have been really exciting, innovative, new approaches to elementary social studies, and I feel like they're making their way more into the field. But unfortunately, a lot of it really hasn't has remained pretty stagnant, you know, for the past century or so. And I've done some work on this for my doctoral dissertation and as well as a book, the dissertation developed into a book. In the 19th century, children learned history and geography. But in the early 20th century, with the advent of social studies education, the field became, in some ways, more engaging to students' lives beyond school. So it became more focused in, in a very Deweyan way of focusing on sort of the ways in which schooling could relate to children's lives, to be more focused on civic engagement, and so forth. And so what I found in my research, though, is that as it became, in many ways, this, you know, pedagogically progressive and child-centered and more sort of democratic, it also began to lose some of the rigor that it had, it had had in the 19th century. And it wasn't ever really, really rigorous, I think most, most of us would say, but it became much more focused on sort of skills for living and how do we get along. Really, really important stuff to learn in school, but in doing so, it really 
kind of downplayed, you know, the sophisticated concepts that young children are capable of learning. And then, so over time, it really, it was very influenced by the textbook market and textbook publishers wanted textbooks that would sell and that teachers would use. And there were rifts between historians and other social scientists and the educators. And it did take a back burner. It really always has. But particularly so in recent years, I think it's, it's become much more drawn to our attention. The fact many scholars have focused on the lack of time in the instructional day devoted to elementary social studies. And it's not tested often until later elementary years. And so with the increased pressures on schools to teach the subjects that are tested, it's been neglected. I always hear about the elementary social studies curriculum as being the expanding horizons curriculum, right? The idea that you kind of start in your local sphere and work your way out as you kind of get a little bit older. But I know that some people have kind of pushed back against that, that even young kids can talk about the bigger world. Mm-hmm. Has that been a prominent curriculum that's been used or is still being used? Yeah, so the, it goes by different names, and you described it well, the expanding communities approach, expanding horizons, widening horizons, different terms have been used. But basically, yeah, it focuses on the child. It starts with kindergarten. Social unit of study is the child. And then in first grade, it expands to the family and school. In the second grade, it goes to the local community, and it expands to you know the state and nation and so forth. It, it looks different in different places. But that approach has been around Paul Hanna, educator at Stanford, is largely credited with this approach, but it actually had been around, even I noticed even in some curricula in the 19th century, I found, I explored some textbooks and curricular materials from the 19th century in Detroit, for example, and found that teachers did use the local environment to teach geography and so forth. So in some iterations, that's actually been around for a while, and in many ways, it makes a lot of sense. Why not teach what children experience and can see, and why not have them, you know, take them to the neighborhood to explore. And then as they get older, they can sort of understand these sort of larger interconnected networks of people and the nation and so forth. And so what's funny you mentioned that is that I actually thought when I was teaching kindergarten myself, we used the expanding environments framework, and we thought we did it pretty well. We thought we were able to teach those complex concepts to them. But I learned in my research that, unfortunately, a lot of teachers find the approach boring and dull, (laughs) redundant with what kids already know. And as such, I think a lot of them just don't teach it because they feel like it's just, the kids have already sort of mastered what the post office is and so forth. And so I've actually seen several different approaches that sort of provide a nice alternative to these kind of approaches. And there's some approaches that actually work within the expanding environments. And so sometimes with my pre-service teachers, that's what I say is that, you know, we're, we're working from the standards and the standards use this expanding communities approach, but let's find ways to actually dig in and investigate our local community from a critical perspective, for example, or let's find ways to really explore something interesting about our family's past. Let's learn how to conduct oral interviews with our family members and in, do so, in so doing, learning, you know, how to ask good questions that historians ask, how to use data, you know, how to examine facts. Things like that. And so I think actually the expanding communities approach, it's very sort of set, I think, in many of the standards and approaches in textbooks people use. But I think there are ways in which to enrich it and to make it rigorous and exciting and to actually tackle complex, controversial issues. That's kind of awesome that you can have like kindergarten students conducting interviews and like looking at artifacts and, and trying to explain them to other students. That's pretty much what historians do. That's, right. Again, a lot of people think you can't do history as a kindergartner, 
but you can. Yeah, I think that's right. In fact, I was recently I had a, a grant to work with teachers in northern Michigan, and it was a grant focused on professional development for teachers focused on historical inquiry. And one of the teachers in the project, my son was in her classroom, and I went and actually observed this, this lesson and uh, that was focused on the history of um, schooling in the past. And I learned that, yes, kindergartners, and you know, this, these were first graders, could, could, can ask questions of can conduct these interviews, but you have to prepare them. And it's a funny story. This they were studying. I think they studied like a lunchbox from the past, and or a lunch pail, and a desk, and so forth. But they also did an interview with Mrs. Bixby, and Mrs. Bixby had taught in the school. I think you know something like 50 years ago, and so she walks into the classroom, and the teacher's getting the children ready, you know, for the to do these interviews. And one of the kids in the class says, "Hey, the old lady's here." <laughs> tact, right. tact, children. Right. So they actually we got over that. They interviewed Mrs. Bixby, and they asked. They were fascinated by the questions they asked, by her answers to their questions. They wanted to know what happened when kids made bad choices in the past, you know. And they thought maybe they got time off of recess or the timeout or whatever. And Mrs. Bixby said, "No, we um, we use rulers on their knuckles." <laughs> I am really glad I did not live in the past. And the teacher really prepared them for how to ask questions and to use answers to those questions to really create a narrative of what life was like in the past. So often in history classes across grade levels, we often think of history as being things that other people do in other places, right? It's always generals and presidents, and that's, that's kind of the official history that's often included in textbooks. But it's so fascinating just to ask people about how you know, institutions you're a part of have changed, right? What did our elementary mm-hmm. school used to be like? Mm-hmm. What was different for students? What was different for teachers? How's the technology changed? Like, I just think that those answers would fascinate anyone, including children. And so I love that students were getting a chance to ask those historical inquiry type questions that really could help them develop a better understanding potentially of the past. That's right. One great influence on my sort of scholarship has actually been my own kids. I have three kids and the questions they ask are so fascinating. And we live in the city of Detroit, and it's a largely population of African Americans. And my son would ask me questions like, why am I the only white kid on my t-ball team? <laughs> and that led me to discussions about the Great Migration, you know. And kids ask really interesting questions. Another question he asked is, well, on International Women's Day, why, why do we have International Women's Day but not International Men's Day? There is kids, one, actually. You know, is there? Really? Yeah, no, well, there is. I forget when it is, but there is actually an international International Men's Day. Someone on Twitter, a comedian from England, whenever people complain about why isn't there an International Men's Day, all he does for that for an International Women's Day is say it is. It's November fourth, whenever it is. <laughs> Men definitely needed a day to honor their accomplishments because it's just never been done before, right? <laughs> yes. Well, but my sarcastic that. response was every other day. <laughs> But what I was trying to convey is that we've learned that they can ask questions about race. They can ask these questions. And I think they, as they grow up, they learn not to ask these questions and not to have these discussions. And so it's really refreshing with young children, the fact that they they straight up ask these questions and talk about things, you know, that I think a lot of older, older kids and adults are really sort of nervous and don't feel like they don't know how to talk about it or do it well. And Absolutely. We all struggle with how to talk about complex issues in ways that are sensitive and so forth. But we've, I think by listening to kids and by giving them direct responses in ways you know, that are age appropriate, we can better understand their social world. So it seems that perhaps we should, particularly for cultural history, hire a bunch of kindergartners or first graders 
to go around, probably dressed like Indiana Jones, uh, <laughs> and do the work of historians because they seem to ask really good questions. You probably might need someone to document them. Although, if they do it orally, I think they'd be okay. I just don't know about their handwriting that young. <laughs> right. Yes. No, they would. Yes. I think interviews would be great. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really fascinating idea. I think this they be do, my new television have, show. There we go. Yeah. The world according to five year olds. Yeah. Yeah, my handwriting, I think, has actually gotten worse. And so I really need to go back to where I get the, the three lines to make sure that I'm doing, like, my loops, you know, big enough. Dude, I wish you have those. Two, I know. Those two lines. There's actually an app that gives you them. Hmm. But I think I'm going to start. My handwriting's always been pretty terrible. It kept me off the honor roll starting in third grade when they started grading you for handwriting. I was never on the honor roll after <laughs> third grade. Annalisa, you're doing some really cool work now that probably could, you know, all educators could learn from, but is geared towards secondary. Do you want to tell us about some of the projects you're doing now? Well, thanks, Dan. You know, some of the recent work I've been doing has expanded to the high school level, and it's been involved some really exciting collaborations, one of which is with Margaret Krakow, Abner Siegel, and Rebecca Jacobson at Michigan State University, and that's supported by the Spencer Foundation. And we've been focusing on how adolescents evaluate and use evidence, particularly around relationship to public policy issues. And what we've been doing in this project is we've been working with four high school teachers in three class, high school classrooms and their students. And what we've been doing is focusing on the ways their students use and evaluate evidence. And one activity we did was had them rank order the persuasiveness or trustworthiness of different kinds of evidence both in the abstract and then related to a, a settled public policy issue of school desegregation. And what we did was we presented them evidence, uh, different kinds of evidence, such as research, data, expert judgment, anecdotal evidence, law policy, and secondhand opinion. So we presented these sort of seven kinds of evidence in, in the abstract, and we provided definitions of what these meant. And we said, which ones do you think are more persuasive and why? And then we had them do the same thing with evidence, actual evidence related to school desegregation or related to the Brown v. Board of Education. And they rank ordered those kinds of evidence. And what we found was that in the abstract, students ranked research and statistical data as the most trusted or persuasive forms of evidence. But when they were asked to consider these same forms of evidence in context, the story was different. They actually ranked law and policy evidence as the most persuasive. And we actually found that nearly all of the sample, or about 83% of the sample, they made moderate to substantial changes between how they viewed the evidence in the abstract versus in context. So, you know, really how students look at evidence depends on the, on the context. And so we asked them why, you know, why, you know, why did you, uh, what was the reasoning for these kinds of evidence uh, or your rankings of this kind of evidence? And then we also had them engage in public policy deliberations around two issues. One was on immigration policy and one was on Internet privacy. And we again presented these different kinds of evidence to them and either both for or against the issue that we were focusing on and had them engage with that evidence in practice. And in that, that was really interesting because with those discussions, what we largely found was that students like didn't even use the evidence, that they actually brought in their own outside knowledge to argue their positions on these public issues. And we really learned the importance of, you know, especially in this political climate where people have such strong opinions, they're not listening to each other, that it's really important to teach students to use evidence and to learn to value that evidence really in relation to, to the issue. And that kind of supports some of the political science research, which actually shows that 
even more informed people often are can be less likely to change their opinions on an issue. And they kind of just <laughs> hunker down right. into their pre-existing beliefs. And I think part of that is just as you learn more, you maybe grab onto the parts that you agree with and you kind of dismiss the evidence that doesn't confirm what you already believed. Right. Confirmation bias. Exactly. No, that's, that's we've been drawing on some of the scholarship and political science to, to look at this. And so we found it's really the credibility of evidence cannot be separated into good versus bad. It's just that they sort of need to understand that evidence can fall along in this continuum of credibility and that sources can be more or less persuasive depending on, you know, the audience so forth. So that's sort of one aspect of scholarship I've been focusing on. And then another gets back to the design of pedagogy. That's a book I've been working on called Reasoning with Democratic Values, Ethical Issues in U.S. History. And that's a collaboration with David Harris, who's a former professor of social studies at University of Michigan and a curriculum director for Oakland County Schools and Paul Dane, a former government teacher. And so this is a second edition of a book that will be published by Teachers College Press. And this, these involve 40 stories from U.S. history. And it features an individual, each story features an individual grappling with a difficult decision. In reading these stories, students will learn the history, you know, sort of the historical context, but they'll also be applying sort of, you know, reasoning skills. They'll draw on values, liberty and equality and common good and and diversity. And so they'll be grappling with whether or not this decision, this person made a well-informed choice in making this decision or not. Some of the examples, like the one, the story I'm working on right now is whether or not Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony should have opposed the 14th and 15th amendments, which I didn't know that they did. I mean, these are well-known women, women's rights advocates and suffragists, and I knew they were abolitionists, but when it came down to really trying to get women the right to vote, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony downplayed their support and actually opposed the 14th and 15th Amendments in light of just trying to get women the right to vote. So they're complex questions that students are going to grapple with drawing on their reasoning either for or against the questions. That sounds awesome. Thanks. The Thanks. book, yeah. not the, the decision. <laughs> right. I mean, that's we've been having a lot of fun and I've been learning a lot of history. I mean, I wrote one on the the whiskey tax that I did one on gerrymandering and so it's been fun really investigating these um that really that a lot of these questions are enduring over time and they're still unresolved but it's been exciting writing these stories we also have a teacher's manual that will go with them so that teachers can lead the students in understanding you know historical understanding of the case and concepts told in the story but then also really trying to get students to express their opinion on the issue you know drawing on those values so here's a fun fact about Elbridge Gary. His name was pronounced yep. Gary. I love Gary. it. <laughs> I knew that was coming, Michael. <laughs> That's one of my things. I've heard Michael say this before. He always wants everyone to pronounce it Gary Mandering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we had a whole podcast where we talked. Yeah. Gary Mandering for good. <laughs> well, Annalisa... It's really cool, all these projects. I like how you talk about the books you write. You're like, it's a book I'm working on. That's, you talk about it the same way like I talk about putting up my laundry. It's, <laughs> it's something it seems like you just do in the morning really quickly, and then you go do other stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> You've done some incredible work. It's really cool. As we kind of finish up, do you want to just tell us a little bit about maybe some advice you have for people thinking about elementary social studies in particular? What should we be thinking about as in making those experiences as good as possible for students and teachers? That's a great question. I mean, I think 
that there's so so much exciting pedagogy out there. And so I think it's about searching out opportunities, figuring out what kids are interested in, your students are interested, what issues are relevant to them, what's going on in their communities that are that's interesting or controversial, and and exploring those topics with students and not shying away from controversial topics and getting them to talk in straightforward ways, you know, as they can about race and power and privilege conflicts and so forth. And so, so one is I think I would you know, look for those opportunities to do it. And two is look for, try some innovative pedagogies, take risks. I always tell my pre-service teachers, encourage them to take risks, try something. And if you fail, you've sort of succeeded in the sense that you have tried something that you wouldn't have tried otherwise. And you've learned along the way. And I think so often you still, unfortunately, still see so much pedagogy that's textbook driven or lecture oriented. And certainly there's some content that can be conveyed that way, but it's so much more enriching and exciting to get students really doing hands-on work, hands-on, minds-on, um, and to, to try these, get students to try um, approaches, you know, that are deeply engaging to them. So that's another thing. And then one thing just to think about for sort of people who are studying elementary social studies, you know, again, there's been so many scholars studying, invested in social studies, elementary social studies recently, and it's been really, really exciting to see that. And it's, I would encourage them to continue to work with, in collaboration with teachers, because there's so much we can learn from teachers. I just love spending time in teachers' classrooms and seeing the ways, you know, they, they're the experts at knowing how to convey this content to their students. And so really developing these research practice partnerships where there's this sort of mutual, mutually beneficial relationship where we can, we can study, see how these pedagogies are implemented, but at the same time from these teachers and, and have engaged teachers in part of this, this work. Sometimes I wish I was a student today because it seems like there's so many neat things happening in history education that I would have loved it if I could ever go back. <laughs> well, I think our task is just to do it in our classrooms, right, Michael? Oh, yeah, I guess that also works. <laughs> I mean, we get, you know, we create cool lessons. It is fun because as a teacher, some of it, you can really be a part of it with alongside your students, especially when it's project-based. And But, yeah, I do agree. I oftentimes want to be in the classrooms of our guests. I feel like Annalisa was probably an amazing teacher, and I think she would made it, have made history fun. And I want to argue about how much I think a dollar is too much to pay for that fire station. <laughs> <laughs> I could see you as a kindergartner, Dan. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I haven't progressed much and, yet. But as you said, you know, failure is also success. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. We really enjoyed it. And I think you gave us a lot to think about. Can you tell us where our listeners can find you or your work online? Well, I have a website associated with my university, Michigan State University. Anyone's welcome to contact me at my email address, which we'll put in the show notes. Great. We will uh, definitely um, share that in the show notes. And hopefully you don't get 500 emails with everyone asking for you to write their lesson plans because I think they probably be pretty inspired by you. <laughs> well, I'd, if they could share one with me, then it would be mutually beneficial. <laughs> so again, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you both. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Here at the Vision of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something creative, fun, or you just want to chat about education, Tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air just like this one. We have a five-star review from Bethany V. Smith. It says, really enjoy listening to the podcast. Great idea for all teachers, not just those that teach social studies. 
Woohoo! Thank you. Yeah, that's very nice. Thank you for leaving that one. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs>